Welcome to Courage and Spice. This is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'll share evidence-based resources and teach you proven coaching tools to help you transcend your self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick, a master coach and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this. Lovind is a writer, creativity teacher, and a mother. She lives in rural Sweden. She's an introverted entrepreneur and a lover of good tea, great stories, the simple, wild, true life. Hello. Her work is about creative freedom and the power of our voices and stories, particularly of feminist creatives and change makers. She has a community and an online course, and she's written a book called The Creative Doer. I'm really excited we get to chat, Anna. Hi. Hi, I am too. There's so much crossover with our two kind of areas of of fascination, creativity and self-doubt. And we share this, I think, a real deep value around having women experience self-belief in their lives and in their creative pursuits. I'm curious about, what you find are your, when people come to work with you or they find your work, what's your take on why we hold ourselves back creatively? That is a huge question, but that is a big part of the work. You know, people who come to me, they come in order to make a creative dream happen, usually, and that might be writing a book or starting a business or learning to knit it it could be big or small but the actual skills needed to do that work is usually not what gets in the way but as you say self-doubt not knowing how to work with fear not understanding what you need in order to fuel your work and yourself properly so that the work is sustainable you know, all those different things, there, there are lots more, especially for women, I feel, given that we live in a world, in a patriarchal world, and also like in an industrial society where, where there is so much focus on productivity and producing visible, tangible results around the clock, basically. Or, um, and and, and that, is, that gets in the way in so many ways. Creative work is cyclical work. And I honestly think, I mean, humans are cyclical beings. So, so that that is just really the way we work overall. But very, I mean, that is not taken into account in the way our society works, right? In the way our workplaces are organized or anywhere, really. But in the creative process, if you overlook that aspect, the cyclical aspect, the fact that there is a time when you plant the seed, there is a time when you help it grow, when you actually make visible changes, create visible results, and then there is a time where you let it go into the world, and then after that, there is a time usually like the equivalent of winter, where everything lies fallow for a bit. Nothing much happens, nothing much is visible. There's a period of integration. Um, 
And then you can start the, the whole process over again. But that period, you know, the winter of, of the creative process, that is the one that we struggle the most with. We've not learned this way of being, really. And, and it scares us. Oh, my God, I'm never going to find the spark again. Like, I'm never, never going to get a good idea again. And then we get into the pushing and the striving and, and, and try to make things happen before we're ready. And that in turn leads to this really unsustainable way of working. I love the way you're describing this. And what strikes me is that it's a kind of, it's about our relationship with time in some ways that when we take a more seasonal, intuitive, cyclical, which for me always feels like a labyrinth <laughs> rather than a nice, neat spiral. But when we take that approach, our relationship with time is much more trusting. Like we kind of believe that the, there will be a time when this passes and I'll move out of the winter and into the spring. We kind of have to trust the process more. But our cultural narratives, as you say, about our drive for productivity in a capitalist world, our relationship with time is almost that it's always running out. We never have enough of it. We don't trust it. And it's always linear. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. And there's no gaps. Because we don't trust time, we want to maximize everything that we jam into it. We don't want to waste it. And so it's an interesting experience, isn't it, to sort of shift that and go, well, what kind of relationship do I want to have with time? Which is really what relationship do I want to have with the days of my life? So true. To focus on the process as much or more than the result. That is what happens when, when you start to shift from that linear perspective to the cyclical perspective. And I also think it's, it's a matter of embodiment, of um, taking into account the fact that we are, as humans, we, <laughs> we have a body. Like they're not just vehicles for our brains. And we live in a world where mind over matter is something to strive for. Like we... We rely on willpower and we fight our fear. We, we fight ourselves so that we will be able to perform better and so on. And that is also an important shift. And one that I think from a feminist perspective of, of actually coming back to the fact that, no, actually, we do have bodies. And as women, it's it's even more visible how we are cyclical beings with with like the menstrual cycle and and the way the hormonal changes over a lifespan also affects our energy levels or how we are available for the work in different ways at different times in our lives and and that is like it's a shift from fighting ourselves and forcing ourselves into working with ourselves. And that has to do with everything. Like what we were talking about just now, the, the awareness of cyclicity, but also fear. What happens when we are frightened? Like we are, so much of the narrative in, in our culture at large, for sure, but also when we talk about creative work is so much about overcoming the fear 
uh, getting out of our comfort zone, uh, stretching, taking the leap, doing it anyway. All you, you know, all that. Like it's it's. We prize that. We prize the overcoming, and I, I'm sure you've had this experience too. That actually, for me, my one of my guiding principles is nothing has gone wrong. If you are frightened, nothing has gone wrong. Like let's start from there. And then you don't have to fight it. You don't have to amp up your nervous system to get over it or push through it. If nothing's gone wrong, you're being a human. And like when you fight your fear, you're not really fighting the fear. You're fighting the frightened part of you. You're fright fighting a part of yourself. And that will always, always, always delay you. It will always make the process heavier and harder because there is one part of you with like digging the heels in, trying to find some semblance of, of safety and you are trying to get away from it <laughs> or, or overcome it or whatever. And like, it's not necessary. That's, that's the insight i think the most important insight that we don't have to do it that way actually it's there are easier ways well and when we're doing it that way we're always identifying or attached to the fear even if we're identifying as against fear that is still the thing we're either associating with or trying to not associate with exactly that becomes sort of the central experience and like that part of you who are digging the heels in it's what if we didn't fight it what if we actually believe that that fear that there is some part of it that is relevant that is real and then it might be exaggerated uh, and it might not be true to what is actually happening in this moment it might be related to something that happened a long time ago but what happens if we sort of make a little bit of space for that and listen to it and, and maybe ask, rather than how can I overcome this, then we can ask like, this frightened part of us, we can ask it, what, what do you need to feel safe enough to move forward? How can we move forward like together as a whole? That is the thing. We want all of ourselves along for the ride. And that will not happen as long as we fight those fears or the frightened parts of ourselves. So, and it's so much easier. That's the thing. That's what I've discovered and, and what everyone I'm working with is discovering, that it is so much easier. There is so much more flow and ease available when you do it that way, when you work with yourself, when you include yourself, even the parts that you find troublesome. It has been one of the most liberating experiences of my work and one of the most frustrating aspects of the coaching industry is that we still have this model that says we have to go to war with some part of ourselves. We have to dismiss or infantilize some aspect of us. We call it the lizard brain or the primitive brain. We, we make it into something other and then we go to war with it because it's like saying there is this broken, faulty part of you that you can't trust. And that is the, 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 the gatekeeper of fear. And it's the thing that's standing in between you and all your dreams. And actually, it's like, no, this is, <laughs> this is usually the part of us that is the least resourced and the most frightened 
and it's often connected with something real that happened probably in childhood when we had the least ability to make meaning out of it that was helpful or it's real now you know maybe there are really good reasons why you are afraid of embodying your creative self yes that is i think one part one part of the fear is is looking at it as as that frightened part of you that comes from way back usually but the other part and this is especially relevant for women like when we what we fear the most is usually like sharing the work showing ourselves as creatives as doing the work that we want to do and actually sometimes there is good reason for that because women face more backlash they face more like online harassment they face more pushback from family and and people around them for like when we step outside of what is expected of us or what, what other people want from us when we change from like that selfless caregiver into someone who's actually maybe stepping into her power a bit and claiming some space of her life for herself and for her work we will face some pushback and it will be worse usually for a woman than for a man and that is also important to recognize and to know that and and from from that knowing then resource ourselves appropriately like what do we need to do our work even during these circumstances like where is it safe for me to start how can i practice and like cultivate this courage that i need in order to do the work in this world as it, as it looks like right now well exactly because i think that's the thing that we can end up doing right as we we kind of go, oh, i'm just telling myself a story I need to dismiss my fear in order to move forward. And that for me has always felt really crunchy because I know in my own experience, certainly with the clients I've worked with, usually there is someone who does not want you to step into your power. And it's someone where you, there will be direct consequences. So by dismissing that fear or saying that somehow you shouldn't have it, it's like we kind of gaslight ourselves and I think that can be so damaging because we lose trust in ourselves. And it sounds like you and I approach this very similarly in that we understand that the world is not safe for women. The world is not safe for powerful women. The world is not safe for unapologetically powerful women. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> right? And so how can we keep going? Because let's accept that is reality and it's not just taking the leap and jumping into all of that if you're not ready for that if you don't have the inner resources the support you need you're going to be hurt if you take the leap <laughs> actually what, what we usually need most of us is is to start small and to sort of expand step by step and practice doing that in some space that feels relatively safe like that could be a circle of friends or a writing body or like a, the community that I run along with my creative doer course that is a, like a safe space for us to practice that and to to feel what it feels like to be seen to be visible to to have feedback on our work and see and, and like practice and cultivate those 
specific skills, really, that it is to stand firm with yourself, to have your own back, to, to support yourself and your work, regardless of feedback. And then once we've sort of, I don't know, flex those muscles a bit, then perhaps we can stretch outside of that into territories or arenas where we feel like it's, it's not quite as safe, but you know, and then from there we can grow. It's, it's, it's a gradual process. We must give ourselves the chance to learn and the chance to see that, yes, we can, in fact, trust ourselves. We can, like, we have support around us. There are people who believe in us. Everyone does not have to believe in us, but, but we do need a few. I don't believe in that self-made crap. Like that individualist perspective on it we do it alone no I don't think anyone does it alone no I think the only part of this that is I guess our personal job our personal responsibility that those words feel wrong to me I think it's more of a it's not responsibility it's something like a personal ownership maybe I think we need to claim our own creative identity for a lot of the people I work with it's a coach identity right we're sort of doing the secret work and and we go to training or we join a community and we're figuring this out and we're finding like-minded souls who see us in this new identity before sometimes we really do and believe in us before we really do but I think it's our it's our ownership of that identity that really changes things because as soon as you believe in that and own that and feel like yeah I am a creative and it takes time to build that identity then that's so much easier to stand in that out in the world yes at first just like you say we need the other people around us to believe in that and to reflect that back to us even before we ourselves believe it. Like people come to me with the experience of, they think of them, themselves or they want to be or become a writer, say. And when they sort of try to own that out in the world, it's like, oh, what, so what, what, have you written any books? Like, have you become published? Or is there anything we can see as a proof, more or less? And then we sort of lose that confidence. Like, I don't have anything to show for it. How can I claim to be a writer? But but the fact is that you can claim it as soon as you're doing it. And it might take a little bit of time for that to sink into your bones and for it to feel like, even if it's been something, and I often find with creative dreams, there's been the seed of it planted long, long ago. I dreamed that I could paint. I dreamed that I could write, you know, as a, as a child. And something happened where that, got, that dream sort of got dismissed or it didn't seem as important. Usually the, the, there is that strong longing that has been there for so long and it might have been sort of dulled over time because we haven't prioritized it. We haven't found a way to listen or believe in it. Life has sort of pointed us in other directions and so on, but it's there and it's, it's, I find it so fasc fascinating how easily it is ignited again. 
as soon as someone is given permission to, to feel it, to recognize it, it's there. And it's like we come to a point when actually I can't deny this anymore or I can only deny it at, at, at a great cost, a cost I'm not willing to pay. And that's the moment where you actually step into it and, and you step onto that journey towards being able to say, I'm a writer, even though I haven't actually published a book. And that first recognition of the longing, that is where everything starts. It's like an invitation. It's like someone very, very stubborn is knocking on your door. And it just keeps knocking. And then we can sort of have headphones on and we can sort of distract ourselves from it. But it's there. For most people, like you say, it has followed them throughout their lives. And some women come to me like, 65 or 70 years old and they haven't still answered it but still it's there i wonder sometimes if actually a lot of our own suppressed and sometimes unacknowledged sadness as women because i think that is endemic but we're so used to it it's the water we're swimming in but I think a lot of it comes, you know, it, it, whenever I see someone posting about the wine after dinner, the brief moment that they get in the bath with a glass of wine and a book. And, and I just, my heart just goes out because I think, I wonder what are the unmet longings that you really have that go way beyond this? Because this is like the bare ass minimum, right? So what is missing from your life right now that you are not asking for? And, you know, it's those women that I kind of, you know, have in my mind when I think about my, my mission, my work is very much like it is totally valid to want more. Even when you look around you and you think I have, you know, what, this is everything I thought I wanted. Why isn't it enough? Keep asking questions. So many have the fear or are aware of the fear of uh, doing, like following that dream or uh, listening to that longing or heeding that invitation. And what if I fail? And what if this happens? And what if I can't really do it? And what if I lose the stream? Then I have nothing and so on. But the thing is, there are costs and risks involved in not answering in not listening to that invitation and not paying attention to the longing and those costs are as real it is that numbness that we have to live with when we don't pay attention to our inner voices or our inner longings it's it's it, it becomes almost corrosive if you go long enough without paying attention to what is what it is that you actually want, what it is that is missing from your life and so on. It affects everything. It affects our relationships specifically with ourselves, but with other people too. Like we have these, so many of these feminine coded identities, like the mother and the wife and the daughter and so on. And they're all about what we can give to others. They're all about selflessness. They're all about putting ourselves last. And like, oh my goodness, the, the, the grief and the bitterness that comes from that, those costs are real, as real as, as like the fear of failing if you give it a try and so on. And, and that's an important insight, I think, because then we come to this decision 
to listen or not with with a more real we can weigh the pros and cons in a more real way when we take that into account i'm so with you and i and i think that it's the same principle right like the world is unsafe for women creativity is unsafe for you like it, there isn't there is no safe space so what are you going to do because we have to create that inside of us we have to figure that out and I for me I found that the safest I've felt has been when other people have believed in me before I could you know and it's so it's taken me a long time to really accept and be okay with the vulnerability that we feel in a community is necessary. If it's a if it's like-minded souls and it's held by someone who creates that ability to allow us to be ourselves, if it's held by someone who can who can you know be with a group and create a space for a group, and I think that is a an incredibly sophisticated skill, right? Because as soon as we get different people in a room, that's why so many of us get wounded in groups. But when we can be in a group that does feel like it's held and we can feel unsafe in community and still be okay, that's where that resilience grows and builds. When I started this work, it's a long time ago now, I was much more focused on like our individual responsibility, if you will, or focus on changing ourselves in order to be able to do the work better and so on, to deal with whatever is going on on the outside. It's it's like always pointing back to what is going on inside you, which is a big part of the work. But these days I feel like actually that is half of it or, or part of it because the other part is getting the support you need, learning how to lean on and interact with other people doing the same thing that you're doing, but also (laughs) the rest of the world, obviously. But like, we're not meant to do this work alone. I believe that so firmly now. And I believe that so many of the fears that we hold, we're not meant to face those alone either. We're not meant to heal them alone, even. I'm not sure it's even possible to heal all those fears and all that insecurity on our own. I think so much of the healing happens in the relationship, in the relating. And so that to be able to to learn that, to be able to experience reciprocity and the support of, of our peers and our friends and so on, that is that's a big part of the work. We can't overlook that. Without that work, uh, we won't ever be able to step into our full creative power. I believe that now. I see what happens when women (sighs) feel safe around other women. In my case, that's that's how I work with uh, women exclusive groups. I see what happens. There is some sort of unfolding that happens. There is a recognition when we see each other, see other people dealing with their fears. We see their greatness and we see their own doubts in that greatness. And that helps us see it in ourselves as well. And there is some, I don't know, alchemy happening in the group that 
I don't think I was aware of that before. And I think that is also part of that whole programming the the self-made man, of course. But, I mean, the, yeah, it, the lone wolf. Right? Yes, exactly. And it's ridiculous because wolves live in packs. Exactly. That's not even true. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy. It, no, it's uh, so communities. That's that's half the work. And it brings me back to what we were talking about right at the start. You know, this world that we live in that is about productivity and has a very, you know, one of the pillars of our culture is capitalism. Make things quickly and sell them and don't waste any time. And actually, it's so individualistic and it's such a, um, you know, a model that only serves a few people. And it feels to me like particularly your work and the way you're describing it, it is very much about not waiting for that patriarchal, capitalist, racist world to change, but alongside it and within it, building something that is a spiral in nature that is built on feminine principles or archetypal feminine principles. This feels incredibly revolutionary when you think about the way that our world is organized and how creative community for women in particular is absolutely contributing to the world we want to live in. And I think when we as creatives look around for role models, we look for people who have gone before us. Much of the stories we see, um, the ideals that we hold in, in our culture, is they are based on this lone wolf or this uh, lone genius, rather, the male genius. They're based on someone who can step away, sit in a cabin for six months and, and emerge with a finished novel and so on. That whole story. Someone of, who doesn't need childcare. <clears throat> exactly. Someone who can delegate the childcare to someone else. They usually have a whole support system around them, which is made invisible, as so much of, of women's work is. When you see that and you don't, you don't see yourself or your situation reflected anywhere in those stories. And so many also, like so many of the women artists that we know of that, that are big in our culture, they're actually, they've chosen to live a life without children, for instance, which is like, a perfectly valid choice, but it's relevant to see that that has sort of almost been a prerequisite to be able to do the creative work. So if you find yourself a mother, <laughs> you have kids around you, you're living a, a messy and overwhelming life, it's easy to draw the conclusion that actually maybe it's not possible for me to do that work even. Maybe I have to wait for cir circumstances to be different. And that leaves us with so many women not knowing how or knowing that it's even possible to actually do their creative work. We don't see it modeled. We don't see that path. We don't have the maps available. And, and that's, that's a big part of my work, actually, to point to, well, actually, we, what if we can't do those six months in the cabin? that's not even an option. So let's not even think about it. It would be nice, but no, 
But what do we have? Like, do we have 15 minutes in the evening? Or do we have like one Sunday or, or Sunday morning, a week? Or what, what is it that you have available? And then, okay, let's look at what is possible to do in that time. And that is also like a step away from the way we think about work, like how we think about the private sphere and then the professional sphere, and those two are kept apart. Well, I'm wondering, because of the pandemic, those spheres, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't know whether we are working from home or we're living at the office for some people. I imagine it feels like a mix. But it does feel to me like our personal and private worlds have collided in the most unexpected way. and. Even just the zooming of, you know, experts on the news and you get to see into their world in a way that personalizes them. And it feels to me that as these worlds are colliding, so is our, our tolerance level for the lies that we've told ourselves. I, I remember in the first lockdown feeling incensed on behalf of any person living with a disability who was told there is no way that you can work flexibly, the whole office would collapse, who is now seeing the whole office collapse and actually it all works. I mean, I just think, my goodness, you know, for, for mothers, for anyone who had additional responsibilities outside of the workplace where presenteeism was a challenge, I'm surprised there was not a riot, but of course, I think that's what we're seeing now is everyone is saying, hang on a freaking minute, actually, I don't want to be stuck in this work, or there is a part of my world that is actually about my creative expression, and that needs time and space too. I wonder if you're seeing that too, if you're seeing some the, the signs of changes as people demand more in different things to allow their creativity. Yes, I think what we see is how these two words have collided and uh, <clears throat> made visible the absurdity of, of even trying to keep them apart. I mean, that model of, of work life is modeled on the time, say the 50s, when a man left for work he left the private sphere, went to work, and he did not bring his concerns of, of children or whatnot to work because there was a wife at home who was responsible for that part of life. And for some reason, that division has been kept alive. Like we don't bring, we look at mothers who needs to like stay home with children who are sick or, or who needs to breastfeed and so on, they somehow become disruptions in the work life. They're, they're an anomalies. <laughs> and uh, still, that's the case to such a large extent. And I think what happened these two years is that that whole thing got messed up. It's like we, all of a sudden, we got to see all those things that were going on at home, like in the private sphere, that sort of invaded the professional sphere. And I actually, even though this has been hell for a lot of people who had to try to parent while also maintaining work and so on, I think like in the long term, this is good because that division 
was doing harm and particularly for women or anyone with a caretaking responsibility really that we now like life is not compartmentalized in reality is that's just like how we have tried to organize it but really everything feeds into each other if you have children if you have caretaking responsibilities that will affect you even those hours you are at work and the other way around it, everything feeds into each other and i think recognizing that <clears throat> the way we've had to do is helpful because it allows us to uh to make our plans and to prioritize from a different place it like is it do i really want this huge chunk of my life to be devoted to like the job that i don't really care that much about or do i really want to pretend that i'm not a mother for a large chunk of my day when actually in reality i am and it's costing me to pretend that and do i really want to be the sole provider of this caretaking work that is going on behind the scenes or or is it possible for us to sort of draw a different kind of map and in doing so is it possible to make more space for the things that actually fuel us like creative work like self care like rest like sleep like being outside live and the thing that i think has happened with these worlds colliding as you say like the the kind of personal conversations that are having that people are having the reflections on how do we want to organize ourselves that it's come at this time in history where we have the technology to mean that we can have a conversation across two continents and it's it's very simple and easy the requirement for people to travel into big cities to you know spend their days in you know what are effectively kind of factory cubicles setups you know and if anyone who is wondering why their soul does not feel like it's flourishing it probably wasn't ever designed to flourish in a cubicle factory but i think there there is these the constraints that always felt necessary that were sort of assumed well we have to do this are suddenly being disrupted in a way that means you can move outside of a big city you can have some garden you don't have to commute every day that means that everything gets disrupted our ability to have a fuller life gets disrupted and i know it's not utopia for everyone i don't mean to suggest that but i think that we just have more choices now and i can see that over the next couple of generations we will probably look back at our cubicle worlds in big cities in the same way that we look back at victorian factories and and think why did we ever do that like you say it's it's a privilege to be in a position where you can ponder these things and you have the space to 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 make these changes and so on but the fact that it is happening and that so many people are having this conversation right now is i think it's a really good thing i think good things will come from it i think a reclamation 
of what we need and what we want in life is happening. Like it's, yeah. So if we get those two hours of commute back, what will we do with them? What what is? Uh, that is what, the question, what, isn't it? When you have that time, yeah. What will you choose to do with it? What are the priorities? Because it's also very very easy to just allow them to be filled, sort of, with busy work and and whatnot. But if we do take the time and bring some intention to it, like. What are the priorities? Like, what it's is possible. it that I want to do with these? Yeah, what is possible? It, it really is. I think those that hour, that 15 minutes, it is the metaphoric blank page that you get to play with. You get to, you get to just see what comes out of you, see what in, is inspiring to you. And that brings up <laughs> just the fact that, okay, if I have reclaim some time here in my day then that is like the critical moment where the selfless woman is so used to giving that away or giving it in service to other people to other courses to so like it's it takes some pretty fierce intention to actually consider giving some of that to yourself to to whatever it is that you're dreaming of doing and spending time with and And it strikes me and this is what I have found every time I've run a retreat for women and you bring 20 women to a beautiful home in the middle of the countryside and they have amazing sleep and every meal is cooked they are so tended to and what comes up? Anger, grief, just the sheer wildness of what is going on. That space can create a sense of, oh, I don't know who I am if I'm not taking care of other people, filling my day with busy work, doing all that stuff. So it strikes me that it is a completely understandable, nothing has gone wrong situation that in that hour that you find, that actually what does come up are some very kind of not creative feelings <laughs> to start with. Yeah, that's so important, I think, to recognize that committing yourself to a creative dream or giving yourself more self-care and so on, that's actually usually not going to feel good in the beginning. Almost the opposite. It's going to feel difficult. It's going to feel foreign. It's going to feel really uncomfortable you're going to have a lot of guilt around prioritizing yourself you're going to be have a lot of fear about where is this going to lead if i give myself this then what's the next step and what's going to happen what's this going to affect our my relationship and, and the other thing that comes up i think is oh i'm just pretending it's not real yeah i'm not really creative yeah yeah absolutely that that feeling of fraudulent <laughs> The fraud, exactly. Uh, and it's all fuckery, right? It's all brain fuckery. It's not to be given a lot of energy. Like feel it, let it be there. And then and you have to find your people then to go, okay, now what? Even with these feelings, now what? And to know 
that this is to be expected. This is a given part of this process. When these doubts come up, like I want us to have the response that, oh, okay, here it comes. Now I'm at this phase where these old ghosts are being revived or, you know, I'm going to have to face this discomfort or these fears. Okay. And then have the tools available to do that. That's why I think that learning how to regulate your nervous system, learning how to help yourself feel safe, that is like the most important tool for a creative person. I think perhaps maybe a person, (laughs) regardless of what it is that you're trying to do in life, but definitely for anyone attempting some kind of, of creative journey. That is perhaps the most important thing, because that is the thing that is going to stop you otherwise. Those those feelings of fraudulence, of guilt, of anger and grief are not going to be with you forever. It's a period of processing the stuff that is present for you. And it may not even come, right? There may be some lucky souls out there who just go, yes, I've got this time, and they're full of bliss and excitement and inspiration. And if that happens, that is wonderful. That's wonderful. I've never actually met that person. (laughs) (laughs) No, but exactly. To know that this is part of the, the process. It's part of that creative cycle that we were talking about. And there will come a phase that is easy and where there's so much joy and there's so much flow and movement and everything and then there will come another phase where it's stagnant and 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 knowing that this will come and it will change and our work is to stay in the room stay with it stay in the relationship with this work and with ourselves that shifts it from from like thinking that our work is to always create forward movement to push through to make things happen no actually your work is just to show up to stay with it and to learn how to handle and hold the discomfort when it comes and to learn how to move and really dive into that flow when that comes because both will happen it's the difference isn't it between treating our work our creative work our um, inspiration as a computer where it's kind of like put this in this comes out right don't don't buy into that kind of model of of creativity instead think of it as a creature something that is animus within you something that has its own spirit and its own energy and it's coming through you it's about allowing it I think of it as a relationship and that I think that's really helpful to see it that way because it also highlights how we need to show up for the work like if it's a human relationship and you show up all excited all in love you do the work for a couple of weeks and then that (laughs) high sort of veins and then you sort of ghost the work for three months and then you show up again and and you know what? That's what's a toxic the, relationship? <laughs> exactly. How do you expect the work to to thrive and to bring good stuff into your life when you treat it like that? When you behave like a very irresponsible friend or or lover or whatever? And that helps. I think it helps us see that first of all, this is a co-creative situation here. 
we are the creators, we are the writers or painters or entrepreneurs. But in what we are creating, we are in a relationship with the work that wants to be born through us. That's my experience of it. And that's how, how I see it. It comes to us. It asks us to create. It asks us to bring this idea into form. That process, it needs our hands. It needs our brains, our, our ability to... Magical when you give into it. I think that's been my experience is that I don't think there is any feeling, any emotional state that I've been able to access that's anything like creative flow like it really is for me bliss it is the greatest gift I think and it happens when we are in alignment when that relationship to our work to our dream when that is aligned and healthy and fueled and resourced and we show up I don't think like to circle back to what you said about that it being a computer and you can just push a button and, and out comes inspiration and, and flow and so on. It doesn't work like that. It's a gift. What we can do is, is create the right circumstances for it. We can create the conditions where flow can happen. And we do that through showing up, through being a good partner to our work, to allowing it to be an embodied process, to, uh, to understand all the different phases of that process and so on. Like we, we create to the conditions. Try and do it alone. Yeah. Right? Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. That is also part of it. To make sure that we are supported and in relationship with not just the work, but also a creative community. That is definitely part of it. I know that there is going to be people listening that are feeling like, oh, but can I? So, um, folks, I'm going to make sure that you've got access to all of Anna's work. She has an online course and a community and this amazing book called The Creative Doer, which you all need to go and buy for yourselves and just read it under the covers or stick it on your Kindle. When you feel like you're nearly ready but not quite, you just give her a call. Yes, Give me a call and I will tell you that you are ready. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. This has been wonderful. And I just love, not. no one can see this, but the sun is beaming in on you right yes. now. And, um, you're surrounded by a halo of light, which is just wonderful. I'm just bathing in light here. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. Thank you. Thanks, Hey, if you're ready to explore more about your self-doubt, I want to invite you to take the Self-Doubt Archetypes Quiz. It's totally free and you'll uncover your particular flavor of self-doubt. It turns out self-doubt is not this amorphous cloud of woe. There are 12 different types of self-doubt and finding out yours is the first step to getting a handle on it. Just head over to www.sasspetherick.com backslash archetype for all the details.